Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover the dark ages of the WWF. It's 1995, it's WrestleMania 11, and it may not be the worst WrestleMania, but it's for sure the saddest. God, is that the truest thing in the entire world? Watching all the air come out of WrestleMania as a concept is just so sad and depressing. Uh, you know, the last couple WrestleManias hadn't been great. You know, WrestleMania 8 was a good show when they were in the Hoosier Dome. And then 9 wasn't a particularly good show, but at least it was Caesar's Palace. It was outdoors. It had a cool and different vibe. And then 10, they were at the Garden, and the Garden's always awesome. This year, they're in Hartford, Connecticut. And it feels like they're in Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, and the arena is super dark and dingy. There's no lights. There's no production. There's no grandeur. There's no spectacle. It's just another pay-per-view. And it's like, I, I don't 100% understand why they chose Hartford as the venue. I'll explain in a minute. Yeah, okay, that's good. Because it's just such a bizarre choice to like, literally, they could like walking distance from Titan Towers to have the show. But it's... It doesn't feel like WrestleMania. It doesn't even really feel like SummerSlam. And part of that is because the matches do not at all look like a WrestleMania card. Part of it is just that the, the every wrestler on the whole show has never been less hot than they are here. And part of it is just that the crowd, while hot for some stuff, is just blatantly disinterested in most of the show that they paid to attend. So, yeah, the state of their business in 1995 is pretty damn terrible like at this point they're running house shows in high school gyms they're barely drawing five thousand at the garden when they run the garden for house shows they've just got no fastball it's the worst year in the history of their company uh the big stars of the 80s are long gone at this point there's no hogan no warrior no andre no savage no piper you know the new generation is not catching on you know Brett, Diesel, Sean, Razor, nobody is drawing. God, that's and we've kind of detailed as we've done shows like from like the year past 94 and stuff like that, that it seemed for a minute like they had everything under control and they knew where they were going and their top stars were over. Brett was so over. And now you fast forward to here, nobody's over. And they I don't know how them. they got there. You maniacs, you blew it up. Yeah. Oh, God damn you all to hell. <laughs> um, and also the company's reputation has taken a real beating. We kind of covered this in each successive WrestleMania podcast, but you know, from about 1990 on, it just felt like more bad headlines every year. Steroid scandal, sex scandal, and it culminated in the summer of 1994 when Vince McMahon went on trial for steroid distribution and was facing doing prison time. Yeah, the fact that that didn't happen makes it so a lot of people sleep on this, or at worst, they're just like, oh, that, that was a weird thing that happened. This almost completely changed the wrestling business forever. Because if Vince goes to jail during the time that his business is the worst, yeah. whew, I don't know that There's WWE no survived. way the WWF survives that. No. And, and like they're just like, oh, well, uh, Pat and uh, Bruce would have run it. Like, no, without Vince, this company isn't a thing. It's just, it's, yeah, Pat and Bruce and Jerry Jarrett, like, driving to visit Vince in prison every week and try to book the company is not going to work. No. <sighs> but 
Vince beat the rap. He was acquitted on all charges um, without presenting a defense. I, in my kind of research into this, the government had no case. Like, did Vince McMahon use steroids? Yes. Did they have any evidence that he distributed them within their jurisdiction after 1990 when it became a federal crime? No. No. It's kind of amazing this actually went to trial. It's was completely stupid and it was a total witch hunt also just like they were trying to basically deregulate the entire industry which they didn't have any legal recourse to do that that's not really a thing that you can just do just because you don't like it and because steroids are like the hot topic of the minute yeah i don't even really understand how it got there there was just such a moral panic around steroids in the late 80s and early 90s that they were going to make an example out of somebody and pro wrestling was the perfect industry to do it to. And Vince McMahon was a perfect target. I mean, that does make sense, but it's, it didn't wind up working for them, which thankfully it didn't because I, I mean, it's not like Vince McMahon hasn't probably deserved to go to jail for various That's other the thing things. That always amazes me is like when they announced the indictment, everyone must've just been like, wait, that that's it. That's yeah, all you it. found. <laughs> it's, it's like that scene in Gran Torino where Clint Eastwood's character goes to confess to his priest and like he confesses he kissed another woman and like he didn't pay the taxes on his boat when he sold it. And the priest is just like, that's it. That's all you've got to confess. <laughs> <sighs> so they've survived, but they've been just kind of crippled. Nobody wants to be associated with wrestling wrestling at this point is the lowest form of entertainment. So in an attempt to rehab their image, they partnered with the Special Olympics, which happened to be taking place in Hartford in 1995. So oh. this is why WrestleMania takes place in Hartford. Okay, that makes much more sense. At least that's a reason, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, they managed to get uh, the governor of Connecticut at the time, uh, Lowell Weicker, to attend the press conference announcing Hartford uh, would host WrestleMania. That gives Vince some you know, credibility and legitimacy that he's desperately seeking at this point. Um, also, Susan St. James, a guest star of WrestleMania 2, was involved in the Special Olympics and at the press conference. So we got to see Vince and Susan uh, revive their mad chemistry. How lovely. <laughs> yes. They're I think she was divorced from Eversol by this point. Yeah, they're very, very sexual chemistry. Yeah. Um, that press conference was October 1994. So my guess is they had probably sealed the deal to get LT by that point, which also makes it make sense that you would want to do it in the New York area. Now, they maybe should have just run the garden for the second year in a row, but I can imagine they didn't want to burn the garden out. Right. So Hartford, New York media market, backyard of new york nearby the company i get it you know they can't run a stadium at this point they can't sell oh, a stadium out question. Yeah. yeah so it's got to be an arena and like with all those factors i can understand hartford i mean i guess it does make sense and it's not like it, i mean it is a city like this we're not trying to take like a big huge dump on hartford but it's definitely a b-town at best and to do that for WrestleMania, it's literally the only time they ever do that for WrestleMania. Yeah, I mean, after that, what is the smallest city to host WrestleMania? And I'm not talking about, like, Pontiac when the stadium is in the suburbs of a major city. Like, right. on that, I don't know, Anaheim, maybe? Say, is it Philly? 
Philly's pretty. I mean, Philly's a lot bigger than Hartford. Yeah, I mean, like Anaheim has like a shitload of people because that's just like that and it's whole just area like the of sprawl LA. of Southern California. Yeah, yeah. There's not a lot to compare it to. You know, Phoenix had become a pretty huge city by the time they did WrestleMania there. Yeah. So where else are they? Uh, Hulk Hogan has debuted with WCW in the summer of 1994, and then. Randy Savage joined him in WCW under, shall we say, mysterious circumstances um, <laughs> at the end of the year. Yes, it's incredibly mysterious circumstances that we'll spend our entire lifetimes trying to figure out. Yeah. WCW is starting to look more and more like a serious competitor to the WWF at this point. They're just a few months away from launching Nitro, and I think another month or two from kind of the initial announcement and decision to do that, but... You know, WCW has become incredible as the WBF has fallen lower and lower. WCW is rising. Yeah. Like, if I were picking rosters at this point, I'm definitely taking WCWs. Oh, arguably, that that was true all through the early 90s, too. I mean, WCW had the horses, no doubt about it. That was not the problem. Yeah, but the WBF still had Hogan for a while there. Now WCW's got Hogan. Though it is worth mentioning that it'll be another year before they do shit with Hogan other than the flare match. So I'm sure like WWE's not really sweating it yet. So they're looking for something to spark their business. I'm sure they're thinking, let's try to recreate Mr. T. So they make a deal with NFL legend Lawrence Taylor. He is about a year into his retirement. He retired after the 1993 season, you know, he's a big star. I'm not a huge star. He's definitely not Michael Jordan. You know, there's certainly bigger athletes, even bigger football players they could have landed, but it's not a bad get at all. No, I mean, this is the part where we have to talk about, like, is LT the guy to get for this? Um, it, it makes sense. A lot of people at the time were like, why, why are you even bringing Lawrence Taylor in? Let's be clear. Lawrence Taylor was a gigantic name. Lawrence Taylor is maybe the greatest defensive player of all time, though I'm not looking for you guys to yell at me in the comments about that. Uh, yeah. I mean, what's the equivalent of this? I mean, I don't know, J.J. Watt today? Yeah. So, like, sure. just like a super dominant guy, and he basically changed. But if J.J. Watt played in New York instead of Houston. Exactly. And, like, that's the thing, too, is that he was part of the New York market, which so Vince actually knew who he was. Yeah, that's he important. was retired, so nobody was going to get in Vince's face about how he couldn't train or he couldn't actually do it. It's it made a lot of sense, honestly. And then Lawrence Taylor had a reputation for being a particularly vicious badass. So it, it's almost like doing the football equivalent of Mike Tyson. Like that's this is the closest you can get to that. Yeah, I mean Lawrence Taylor did shatter Joe Theismann's leg. That was a few years uh, before this, but. There's just not that sense. With Mike Tyson, when he showed up, it was like, who knows what this animal could do? Anything right. could happen. He bit a man's ear off and didn't seem sorry about it afterwards. Yeah. He's it, suspended from boxing. Like, there's not that same electricity with Lawrence Taylor. Well, all, part of that is the fact that Lawrence Taylor clearly, I don't know if it's Vince's idea or Lawrence Taylor's idea, but Lawrence Taylor was a heel the entire time he was playing football. He yeah. was a monster who killed people. Like, I don't know if people really – there are a lot of people today who probably never watched Lawrence Taylor play football. Lawrence Taylor would sack people like a freight train was coming through. Like, Lawrence Taylor 
made like literally changed the way that offensive lines played in football because he would just be in the backfield immediately at the start of every play trying to kill your quarterback. Like it was a problem. But to have him come in as a baby face. Yeah, I mean, he they are in the New York market. It's mostly Giants fans up there. But like yeah. nobody, even Giants fans didn't love Lawrence Taylor. No, he, he had a he had a controversial relationship with the media, with Bill Parcells. You know, it was it was love hate. He was so yeah. good, you had to love him. But yeah, he was a difficult guy to deal with. People were ready to see him retire and go away. So it's not like there's all this feeling like, oh man, we finally get to see LT again. We haven't seen him in so long. Like he just retired, and people were already kind of done with his shit. Yeah. So LT was reputedly a wrestling fan, but calls to his agent were not returned. So they devised the strategy of having Lex Luger go to LT's charity golf tournament and meet up with him. And amazingly, Lex Luger closed the deal. And two days later, LT was in to do WrestleMania for rumored $500,000. Fucking Lex came through in the clutch. Yeah, for the one time ever. Yeah, it's so weird. And Lex Luger's reward for securing LT's services was a tag team match with Davey Boy Smith against the Blue Brothers. Well, that's so funny because... The equivalent of this is the Dennis Rodman thing in WCW, though it's not at all the same in terms of notoriety and success. You would think that Luger would have gotten himself in the match, right? Yeah, what do you want to bet Lex thinks he's going to team up with LT or wrestle him when he does this? Then it's like, oh, no, 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 no. No. And the funny thing is, like, if Lex had managed to stay over to any degree, that's probably what would have happened. Yeah, because he used to play football. Yeah. And, like, you need – having a top babyface do a tag with Lawrence Taylor would have been the smarter idea. Though, once we get to the match, I'm just going to say it right now. This is a pretty good match. Yeah. LT and Bam Bam work a miracle here. Yeah. I mean, like, there's nothing wrong with the match whatsoever. It's probably the best celebrity match of all time. And I think the plan was for LT to do more matches, but this show just doesn't really draw. You know? Right. In the end, the 500K they spent getting him in isn't really worth it. Do you think that they really plan to do all those spinoff matches with all the other guys? What do you mean? Like the whole all pro team? Yeah, because they all. No, I, th- literally- I think they were going to come back and like have LT and Bam Bam team up next time because that was how this was pitch to Bam Bam was, yeah, you're going to do the job to LT, but you're going to turn face and you're going to get a big run on top and we'll bring him back and you guys can team up next time. And none of that ends up happening other than the face turn. Right. He turns face and then kind of grovels in the mid card for a while. No, that makes sense. But like, it, it kind of feels weird that they d- deliberately set up individual feuds within this whole thing between like Reggie White and whoever and Steve McMichael. McMichael. Steve what? McMichael was great here, actually. I literally feel like Eric Bischoff watched the show and was like, yeah. we got to sign that guy. Which, you know, God, Mongo sucked. Yeah, Mongo but, was terrible. But I can see why you'd think he was great. Yeah, he had that. a ton of charisma. He just, I think, needed time to learn to wrestle. Do you think they should have done like a five-on-five match? I like would have been into that. We're in this show. That would have been fun. That would have been a worthy addition to this shitty card. Yeah. I mean, it's with that many people, I'm sure that like the heels could keep it under control and like make it an actual thing. It, it just would have been fun. 
Um, what do you think of the choice of Bigelow as the opponent? I mean, given how the match turns out, it's hard to kind of question it. I mean, Bam Bam, big, impressive, you know, going to – it's a press conference. A non-wrestling fan who sees this is going to go, holy shit, look at that guy. Yeah. It so, makes sense, but only if you – Divorce yourself from the fact that he has never been given shit to do in this company and is not a name at all. His match the previous year at WrestleMania was against Doink the Clown. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> and he fucking loses it. No, 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 he wins it, right? Uh, I think they won that one. Yeah, but like Luna. Luna beats Dink. That's how that match ends. <laughs> Who can forget? Ugh. Um, so in the in the media appearances leading up to this, Bigelow really played up his dislike for LT. He was, you know, implying I'm gonna shoot on him, you know, this is my yard, you know. I don't like a football player coming in here and trying to take away my profession. Right. You know, good enough. I mean, they got a ton of attention. Like the press conference they did, all sports media covered that. Um similar it hits a lot of the same beats as Mike Tyson, but it doesn't do business. Like what, what, why do you think that is? Um, I think partially it was the, the, the limited comparable scope of it being Lawrence Taylor. Like there's just no comparison to Tyson. Tyson was a media figure that was like a household name. And that was at the peak of his notoriety where people just wanted to see him. Like that, that was a very special moment where WWE tapped into something where they had someone interesting that was going to make people interested. And they brought in Mike Tyson like immediately after the ear biting thing, where he's literally not able to do his sport anymore because yeah. of this monstrous thing that he's done. And this is the first time you get to see him after that. Yeah. Like that, like the perfect time to bring him. Same with uh, Rodman in WCW. Like you get him. After the fucking finals, where like he and Carl Malone basically have a wrestling match on the court, yep. where he's part of the greatest team of all time, and like that's the perfect timing. Here, no one gives a shit about Lawrence Taylor in 1995. Like it's a sporting news thing, but it's not enough to be like, oh shit, they got LT. We better go see what's going on with that. It's not the same kind of mainstream story that Tyson doing wrestling was. And the the tone of the media coverage was very like, Lawrence Taylor, why are you lowering yourself to do wrestling? Like, oh, LT's hit hard times. He's you know right. just selling out for a paycheck. There's only like literally, we talked last week before we when we were gonna go watch the show, and like I kept coming back to a singular idea. And that's that there's only one football player who could have fit in this spot and made it something. And I don't know that they even knew who he was or particularly wanted him. But in 1995, if you're going to do a wrestling match with somebody who's a football player, you got to ask Dion, right? Oh, yeah. Prime time. Like, yeah. this is the peak of prime time. Like, this is right about when he goes from, like, the 49ers to the Cowboys, right? Um, trying to think is yeah he's going to San Francisco is he is this the year in San Francisco I think he's just left Atlanta yeah so then he's in San Fran which is like the first year he becomes like a big national and they, thing. Won, and they won in San Fran I think had just won the Super Bowl if I'm remembering the years correctly he does his one year in San Francisco and they win it and then this offseason he signs the huge contract with the Cowboys I think 
Yeah, so this is literally right if the, if we have the years right, which I mean we could look yeah. it up, but <laughs> if that if that is this year, he's fresh off winning the Super Bowl in absolutely dominant fashion. This is the offseason where he becomes like the most famous and talked about free agent of all time, where he goes to the fucking Cowboys. He is someone who cuts wrestling promos in every press conference he does every fucking day. Yeah. He's a two-sport athlete who openly prides himself on being the greatest athlete on the face of the earth. That's the guy. <laughs> now, I'm not sure he would have done it. In fact, I'm, he probably wouldn't have done it. But Yeah, I mean, it, it, and in New York, he would have been a massive heel yes. as a newly signed Cowboys player. Yeah, like, holy shit. It's Floyd like, Mayweather. Yeah, and like maybe the match is like you keep LT in it, and it's like LT and Diesel versus Michaels and Dion or something like that. I, I don't really know. It's just that guy could have gotten you real mainstream attention at this time. Like that, like we're talking about how Mike Tyson was the perfect person at the perfect time, and so is Dennis Rodman. Dion is that guy at this time, not Lawrence Taylor. And you know what? I thought the complication was he was still playing for the Braves at this point, but he was now with the Reds. Oh, see, there you go. Yeah, because before I was like, no way is Ted Turner going to let Dion go wrestle in the WWF. That is not happening. But he's free. He's playing for a neo-Nazi sympathizer Marge Schott at this point. Oh, it's, God, they would have done something with Marge Schott. Ugh, gross. Yeah, she was kind of a thing at the time. Ooh. But like literally, and this is like the literal two months in between the Super Bowl and the baseball season. Yeah, this is the only time he's free. It's like... Okay, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because I'm sure there were complications or he would have said no. I, it, it's hard for me not to feel like Vince just didn't realize that Lawrence Taylor wasn't the perfect guy for this. That's their fault. So they try to position Taylor with their new top guy who is Diesel, Big Daddy Cool, Kevin Nash. The rub does not work here. No. Um, but they do a bunch of, you know, they have them sit courtside for a Knicks-Bulls game at Madison Square Garden. That might have been the game where Jordan dropped 55 on the Knicks in his comeback. Oh, God, that's such a great game. Yeah, that might be. The, I, I don't know this for sure. That might have been the double nickel. God, that's um, a legendary game. Yeah, they were both at the press conference. They were both at the public workout in Times Square. They did, I think, like the day or the week. Uh, before this show, if you're trying to rub off LT on Diesel, shouldn't you have them team up like Hogan and T did at WrestleMania one? See, that's what I'm thinking is that like, I, I get where you're going with Diesel and like what you're doing here. But like, if you're not having him do something that's really going to help him, why don't you do that? It protects both of them. Like it just makes more sense that way. Right. Yeah, and yeah, but indeed, what they wanted here was people are going to see Diesel and they're going to be like, oh my God, look at that guy. Who the hell is that? Look, look how tall he is. Towering over Lawrence Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't click. No. Uh, it, it, but it nothing really in Diesel's title run did. Ironically, probably the better fit for this was Luger. <laughs> like, if he was still a top guy at that point, oh, which he wasn't. Though. But, like, if he had managed to still be over, like, he's a former football player. Yeah. A man, mountain of a man. Like, that would have made just way more sense. As former, what who did he play for? He played in the USFL for, oh, okay. I think, the Tampa Bay Bandits, along with Ron Simmons. Oh, bandit ball. Good stuff. Yeah. 
But yeah, just um, like Diesel doesn't super fit there, and it doesn't fit his vibe. And like that's part of the pro. We're gonna get into the whole Diesel problem, but like using Diesel as like a promotional tool like that is a misunderstanding of that character. So charting the rise of Kevin Nash, he comes over from WCW in the spring of 1993 as Shawn Michaels' bodyguard. His first big break is the 1994 Royal Rumble, which we covered back in January, where he clears out the ring and then kind of plays King of the Hill for a few minutes, throwing out each guy who comes into the ring. Um, he didn't wrestle at WrestleMania 10. He was just in Shawn's corner for the ladder match. But then after WrestleMania 10, they kind of flip-flop that duo, and Shawn becomes Diesel's manager, and Diesel is the one wrestling. And he wins the Intercontinental title from Razor Ramon on Superstars in April, holds it for a few months, and actually becomes a double champion where him and Shawn also win the tag belts. He's pretty clearly being marked as the top guy by SummerSlam, I'd say. He loses the belt to Razor, but... That's just to, you know, free him up to go get the world title at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Bret Hart is the champion from WrestleMania until Survivor Series. Forgot to mention, um, King of the Ring, the title match, was Bret defending against Diesel. And they went to a no contest after a bunch of interference. But, yeah, just straight to the moon for Diesel here. Oh, God, yeah. And it's almost like they should have... Anyway, we'll get to that again, but I just really think that saving Brett Diesel for this is what they should have done. Yeah, it's just, it's too fast. It's too much in too short a period of time. Um, They're just so desperate, man. <laughs> yeah, Survivor Series comes around. Um, on the undercard, Diesel and Sean split up when Sean accidentally super kicks Diesel for like, the fifth time in a row this has happened. And what, yeah, like every single match this has happened for months now. Um, and Sean hightails it out of the building and Diesel chases him out of there. And the crazy thing is that's really Diesel's face turn. Like, yeah. He's really a heel up until then. Like the fans really have no time to kind of digest him as a baby face before he gets the title. That is pretty crazy now that I think about it. Yeah, like I think, you know, he was kind of a cool heel and like he'd been trending in a face direction, but this is his proper turn at Survivor Series and he wins the belt that weekend. Wow. So at that Survivor Series, Bret Hart loses the world title to Bob Backlund in an I quit match where each guy has someone in his corner, I believe. Uh, Brett had Davy Boy Smith and Backland had Owen as their corner man. And you lose the match when your man throws in the towel to stop the match. Um, so Brett gets caught in the crossface chicken wing for like literally 10 minutes at the end of this match. And Bulldog is knocked out and Owen begs and pleads with Helen Hart please, you know, stop the match, put Brett out of his suffering, please throw the towel in. Finally, Helen throws in the towel and stops the match, at which point Owen starts celebrating in one of his greatest heel moments. <laughs> Just God, Owen Hart was amazing. They tried to protect Brett so hard with that. And like yeah. I, I, I get it because it's a weird situation. And I, I know that they feel like clearly at the time they feel like 
we've got to get the belt on a heel so we can get the belt on the fucking diesel because he's the guy yeah i mean it's they're totally recreating hogan everything yeah. about it the throwing in the towel submission loss to iron Sheik, and then having the substitution for madison square garden at the house show where yeah. diesel can win the belt just like hogan substituted for backland against Sheik in 84 it they're following the template but the template does not fit this is a horrible idea and like, let's just talk for a second about Diesel as a character, because there's a very good reason why Diesel gets over. And Diesel does get over. People gloss over that when they talk about what a failed run this is. Diesel was so clearly going to be the guy. Diesel was getting massive pops when he was with Sean. Like he was right towards the time where they abruptly turn him face. Like the crowd was making it very clear that they wanted Diesel. Because Diesel was just a silent ass-kicking badass who was seven feet tall and murdered people. Like, that always gets over in every every place that you see it in the wrestling industry forever. And we know that the real Kevin Nash is an amazing promo with a great sense of humor. Yeah. But Vince sees Hogan. Yep. So and they Vince just ran that the- square peg into that round hole. There has never been anybody who was less Hulk Hogan than Kevin Nash, right? In terms of like that personality. He is not earnest. He is not wholesome. He is not humble. He's a dick. And we love him for it. But it's like if they had tried to have Steve Austin telling people to say their prayers and eat their vitamins. I, I genuinely feel like Steve Austin couldn't have happened unless they had failed with Diesel in this way. Yeah. They needed Where, like, to, and Luger too. They needed that failure and that humbling. And Shawn Michaels, they did this to every single babyface champion they'd get in this era. Because they would have done this to Austin if it yeah. hadn't failed three times in a row before. To like, finally somebody got through to Vince and we're just like, look, man, you keep trying to push people into this Hogan mold and you're destroying who they actually are. And the funny thing is, is that Hogan is not the comparison for Diesel, and he never was. Looking back to wrestling history now, and we mentioned this in our Roman Reigns podcast, they did the exact same thing with Roman Reigns that they did with Diesel to the exact same results. To a T. They even look the same, because at this point, Diesel's got the jet black hair and the black goatee. And like for all like the things like, oh, they're treating Reigns like Hogan, they're treating him like Cena. Like, no, Vince is trying to make right what he failed with Diesel. And he, he couldn't do it again. And all the same mistakes again. <laughs> Literally all of them. Like the, the suffering Succotash promo is just the, the promo video where Diesel's playing Santa at the office Christmas party or whatever. Oh, Shawn Michaels is the Daniel Bryan. Who just shows him up and completely destroys it and turns himself babyface in the process. Oh, it's, it's a textbook thing. Those who don't learn from history. It, it's it's pathetic, honestly. Like everything about this show is pathetic. But the worst part is that they waste Diesel, because Diesel's fucking awesome. Oh, he's so good. He looks like a million dollars walking to the ring, just a big pile of money shuffling its way to ringside. And like, they they fuck him up so much, it makes me want to cry. And if if Kevin Nash doesn't leave and go to WCW like literally the next year, if he stays. 
I very oh, much God. wonder if they figure it out. Well, they did figure it out when he turned heel and started doing those shoot promos where he was like, I made myself. And then right after I won the title, you had me sitting down with the corporate suits telling me I needed to be nicer. I needed to lose my edge. I needed to be more marketable. Like. Yeah. Like it'll that Diesel be- was a great character and would have fit perfectly in the Attitude Era, but instead he jumped to WCW and made like a trillion dollars. Yeah, one of the greatest what ifs in wrestling history is what if Diesel doesn't jump? Does WCW fail? Does WWE light on fire with Diesel being on top with Austin and all of them? Like it, it's a hell of a question. No idea what the answer to it is. So to illustrate how compressed this time frame was, here's the calendar of how this all went down. Back then, they were still doing Survivor Series on Thanksgiving Eve. So Wednesday night, Backlund beats Brett for the title. Unless you bought that pay-per-view or like talked to somebody who did, you don't hear about that, that Backlund won the title until Saturday morning when you tune in to watch Superstars. Also on Superstars on Saturday morning, they announced that Diesel would substitute for Bret Hart to challenge Backlund for the world title at Madison Square Garden that night. Backlund wins the title on Wednesday. Diesel wins the title on Saturday night at the Garden. Now, as absolutely wild as that is, because they've never played like hopscotch with the title like that before this. Like, ever. Like, it's bizarre that they made this decision. I think, like, the only time that they flip-flopped the title this fast was the time when, well, they took it off, like, Brett super quick because they, like, did that thing with the Mountie. Is that what happened? That was the Intercontinental title. Oh, yeah, that's the Intercontinental. Um, The other one, I I mean, the one I could think of is uh, Taker beating Hogan at Survivor Series and then, like, a week later on the Tuesday in Texas – Hogan won the belt back, but they ended up vacating it from that anyway. Right. But yeah, I mean, this is still an era where they really tend to protect the title. And tell the reigns are months and months long. This is, other than the other thing they did, obviously, the Hogan-Yokozuna thing at WrestleMania 9 was its own weird little deal. But they have generally been protective of the title up to this point. And now they're, they bump it or jump it in three days. So... Net- you're a fan outside of New York who doesn't go to the Garden. Saturday morning, you find out Brett lost the title to Backland. You tune in to watch Action Zone on Sunday morning, and you find out, holy shit, Diesel beat Backland for the title last night. That was literally my experience, because that's who I was, and those were the only two shows that I watched. Yep. And it was fucking madness. Like, yeah. I, I remember as a kid being like, what? Like, I didn't even fully know that Backlund had the title yet. Yeah. And, now and what's a house show? Yeah. What does that mean? I remember, they do shows that aren't on TV? I remember seeing the footage because they had, like, this weird dark footage. Yeah. Of, like, Diesel sticking Backlund with the powerbomb and pinning him in 10 seconds. Like, what? <laughs> like, just, yeah, like, you know, squinting at the screen. What happened there? Yeah. And, like, the thing was, having Backlund involved in this at all is such a weird idea. Because 
I don't know what caused Vince to bring Backlund back. No, actually, I do. He's been it's back for a couple of years too. Like he was at WrestleMania nine. Yeah, I, I know. I just don't know what makes Vince think like, oh, hey, let's put him in the main event. People will accept him there. Like, what? Like he is a joke. It's and been they're ten years since he was the champion, and he wasn't around for the Hogan boom period. No, he's never been on television in front of people. No one outside of New York knows who the fuck Bob Backlund is. Yeah, and like it's... you're presenting him as a crazy person. Yep, it's it's very strange. I mean, like, but there's more. There's more of that too because they bring back Bundy too. They bring back Nikolai Volkov. Like, what the fuck was Nikolai Volkov doing here? Oh, I just anybody who was around for the big years, even if they weren't really stars back then, they're bringing back now. Yeah, this it just tells you everything that Vince feels about the roster that he has. He is not happy with it. Yeah, um, Nash and shoot interviews would recall really struggling to work with Backlund, who just can't adapt his wrestling style for the '90s. Backlund wants to pile drive Diesel, which looks totally ridiculous. He's having Diesel sunset flip him, which, yeah. <laughs> According to Nash, when he got to the curtain after the match, Undertaker was waiting for him and was like, boy, if you ever do a sunset flip again, I will kill you. <laughs> Protector of the business, Mark Calloway. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> we're going to have a very serious conversation right now. Well, especially since, like, I'm sure that when he sees that, Taker's like, uh-uh, this is a guy I'm supposed to draw money with later. He's doing fucking sunset flips to Backlund. No, absolutely not. Yeah, so they don't, they stopped the Backlund matches, then they gave him Bundy to work with instead. It's like... It's better like, than Kelsey's nuts. I have no idea what is going on in Vince. I think it's just that Vince is distracted. I think it, you have to at least partially attributed to that right like there's no way that vince has his full attention on what's going on there's no way it's just they're, again they're trying to recreate hogan oh hogan and bundy drew that was a big match it's like they're going back to the formula it's like vince yeah. is like i don't got time to like fucking point by point this pat just do hogan again do that yeah. but in Shawn michaels it's the total opposite hogan never would have gotten in the ring with a Shawn michaels no because he knows exactly what a Shawn Michaels would have done, which is steal all his spotlight. Yeah. I mean, it's like Hogan wrestling Ricky Steamboat in 1985. That wasn't going to happen. God, how fucking hilarious would that have been? At the Royal Rumble, uh, Diesel and Brett fought to a no contest after a bunch of people interfered. So Diesel's the champion, but they won't put him over Bret Hart. Which is like, why have him yeah. face Bret Hart first then? Yeah, give him, let him beat somebody. Give him somebody to beat. Frankly, have him beat Sean <laughs> right off the bat. Yeah, and do then that. do Brett at WrestleMania and have you know the torch passing moment. Yeah, that should be this match. This should be Diesel versus Brett. I don't think Diesel should have won the belt before. This should have been when he won the belt, in my mind. I would have let him win the Rumble and actually build him up as a baby face. When we did the Rumble 94... We talked about, and when we did WrestleMania last year, we talked about how Owen should have won the title at some point in the past year. Probably. But even if he doesn't, he should have at least been fighting for the title against Brett. Having Brett just keep the belt until here is easily the thing that makes the most sense, right? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, what did the, the backland transit? I mean, they just, I think it was way too soon for Diesel to get the belt. I think you got to have that hero's journey and that yeah. rise. The cleanest like, thing is literally turned face and won the belt two days later. Yeah. So, like, or like, if you want him to beat a heel, put it on Owen. Put it on Owen at the Rumble or something. Like, Owen's yeah. got the heat, that's for sure. You can make that work. That's workable. It's not like Diesel's, it's not like Diesel versus Owen needs to draw the house here because they're expecting LT versus Bam Bam to do that. Yeah. Shawn Michaels won the Royal Rumble after entering number one and lasting all the way to the end. This is the both feet didn't touch the floor finish and with he Bulldog. Is- He's a heel, but he yeah. lasted from number one. <laughs> well, yeah, Ric Flair did that too. Yeah, but the way that Michaels does it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Sean has his eye on the prize here. I think he can tell Diesel's not getting over the way he's supposed to. I might have my shot here. And this might be another thing where like Vince is distracted enough that he doesn't see what's happening. <laughs> yeah. Sean might be the only wrestler in WWE history who engineers his own face turn from inside his heel storylines. And like, it's pretty genius on his part. He's like, I don't know if Diesel has what it takes and Brett's cooling off and there's no other top guy. Maybe I could be the top guy. Backing up Sean at WrestleMania would be the Lawcast's favorite wrestler, Sid, who returned to the WWF in February as Sean's new bodyguard. I love him as Sean's bodyguard. They have nothing in common. No, no, totally ridiculous pairing. But thankfully, it will lead to that awesome match at the Garden at Survivor Series 96. Yeah, and it's kind of great because Sean's like this cool guy who everybody loves and everything's great. And then he just has this incredibly insane best friend who follows him around. And Sean's always like, uh, yeah, Sid, go ahead and rant about that for it. It's fine. All right, it's fine. <laughs> Everyone's got that embarrassing friend. Meanwhile, Bret Hart has just sort of been cast aside. On this night, he will face Bob Backlund once again. Once again in a submissions match. It really should have been Bret versus Owen. They instead had a match on the they had a like falls count anywhere match on the um go home. Raw before this WrestleMania. Guys, one year ago, Bret Hart was coronated as the future of WWF, as the guy. They cast Lex Luger aside, finally said, Bret, it's yours. A year later, he is wrestling Bob Backlund in an I Quit match while Diesel and Shawn Michaels fight over his spot. It's trash. Like... You understand how Brett ended up being bitter. Yeah. Like, look. You got fucked here. Yeah, Bret Hart's a bitter asshole. Like, that just is what it is. But there's no doubt about it that he is completely right in that he got fucked hard these couple years. Yeah. Um, Not much going on with Undertaker. He's feuding with Ted DiBiase's million-dollar corporation, and he'll face King Kong Bundy on this night. And that's kind of it for the card. There's only seven matches. The show is only like two and a half hours long. It's definitely the smallest WrestleMania in its scope. Yeah. I mean, they have Yoko, but he's like a surprise. So like, it's not even part of like their advertising or anything. And like, did Yoko come back from something to be on this show? 
he had been gone since he lost the casket match to Taker at Survivor Series. Got it. Taker got his casket match revenge on Yoko. Nice. So, yeah, he's been gone for a couple months. And yeah, that is the setup for WrestleMania 11. So it's April 2nd, 1995 at the Hartford Civic Center in Hartford, Connecticut. Sellout crowd of 16,305 on hand for an approximately $750,000 gate. Uh, the pay-per-view did a 1.3 buy rate for about 340,000 buys, which is just kind of on par with the previous, like, really the last five WrestleManias, I feel like all did that same buy rate. Like everything since like six has been, you know, 340,000 buys approximately. Yeah. This is pretty much just their audience. That's who, yeah. That's who they've got left. They've got the hardcore fans left and nobody else is buying. Yeah. It's arguable that they can never really go far below this. Cause I feel like this is like the minimum of people who give a shit about WWF at any given time. Yeah. They, you know, that's a company gross of about $5 million, which just, wow. Like for WrestleMania, WrestleMania, the first WrestleMania, I think did a $4 million gross, like with no pay-per-view availability, closed circuit. Yeah. I feel like now they clear like a hundred million dollars on WrestleMania. It's a lot of money now. So we open the show, the opening package shows clips from the previous WrestleManias, just the celebrities, though. And then they talk about the celebrities for tonight. Nothing about wrestling or wrestlers. Well, because, again, they can't show Hogan because he's with nope. the other company and he's every can't good show moment. Savage. Yeah. Uh, now, let, let, let's make a comment about the celebrities on this show. I don't know who chose them, but it's not Vince. Because these are the most relevant celebrities they've ever had, ever. And, like, in terms of, like, just people on shows that are actually popular in the year 1995. Yeah. Unlike whoever the fuck they had the last couple years. Yeah, so a lot of them will not sound, like, you know, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Okay, clearly not a big name anymore. But in 1995, Home Improvement was one of the most popular shows on TV. Um, Nicholas Totoro was on NYPD Blue, like, Maybe the most popular show on primetime TV at that point. Right. Pamela Anderson, Baywatch, you know, and Jenny McCarthy. But like, add that to Lawrence Taylor. That's actually a good crew of celebrities. Yeah. Pam Anderson is legitimately like a huge name. Like, this is like right near the debut of Baywatch, isn't it? I believe that sounds right. Yeah. Like, she's a big deal, like tabloids every day kind of person. Um, Vince tries to like introduce our you know special guest to sing America the Beautiful, but his mic doesn't work. Um, the it's a girl from the Special Olympics, and this is actually a very nice moment as yeah. she sings America the Beautiful. And like the crowd gives her like a long, loud standing ovation yeah. at the end. Again, they're really trying to clean the image up. This is yeah. family friendly entertainment. Yeah. In as much as it ever is. Pounding you over the head with this message. And then the main event is a guy who used to bang hookers and do cocaine. Well, literally even worse than that. (laughs) Literally, like, we're a family-friendly show, Special Olympics. And then the very first person you see on TV after that, Jerry the King Lawler. (laughs) Accused rapist Jerry Lawler brings you to the show. Him and LT have something in common on that front. Jesus Christ. 
Opening match. Yeah, I forgot to mention the commentary team is for the second year in a row Vince McMahon and Jerry Lawler. And it's ass. Oh man, they're terrible together. They're a terrible combination. This this whole show just feels so dated. Like it, it's 1995. It feels like 1985. And like they also have Jim Ross doing like weird aisle interviews, like yeah. Gene Okerlund does, which don't yeah. work because he's not Gene Okerlund. They're back to the red, white, and blue ring ropes, the blue mats on the floor. After they had that kind of cool, sleek look the year before this, they're back to the 1980s. Everything visually about this looks like WrestleMania 4. Yeah. Like, it's just bad. Dark arena, you know, not a lot of special effects for the entrances, just small, sad. Again, and, and I hate to keep banging this the point over the head, but it really feels like Vince didn't have a lot to do in putting this together. Because it's just this doesn't feel special at all. Opening match, we've got the Allied Powers, the team of Davy Boy Smith and Lex Luger against the Blue Brothers, who are Ron and Don Harris with a mountain man gimmick and managed by Uncle Zebekiah, who is Dutch Mantel, a.k.a. Zeb Calter. Boy, this is the first time we've ever in a podcast gotten to talk about neo-Nazis twice on the same podcast. Ooh, how about that? Oh, boy. How great is that? This is the first of dozens of times that people try to push these two completely untalented assholes. I, I like the Allied Powers, I'll say. Like, it's what a, a cool team. name. What a cool gimmick. They have an awesome entrance theme that mixes... Uh, Luger and Bulldogs entrance themes together. I feel like that's the first time they ever do that. Yeah, which they'll become a staple of the company in years to come. Yeah, but it's very cool. They look awesome together. Yeah. And like as they came out, I kind of realized like Bulldog and Luger are kind of the same person. Like in the late 80s, early 90s, they were the same, had the same role in the company as each other, really. Like it, what a great idea for a tag team is those two. If you had had a good tag division, having them be the centerpiece of it could have really worked. Them against Owen and Yoko would have felt like a really big match. And like Luger finally could have gotten his revenge on Yokozuna. Absolutely. Like I was Instead just- we get this garbage. And I was sitting there thinking like, man, if they had the Steiners here versus Luger and Bulldog, that's a hell of a match. They could have torn the house down together. Yeah, this is a quick match, only six minutes, but I wouldn't have wanted it to go much longer than that. Um, the powers dominate initially with stereo power slams and clotheslines. Um, one of the Blue brother Brothers gets a cheap shot on Bulldog from the apron. Um, then one of the other, one of the Blue Brothers comes off the top, takes too long, misses an elbow drop, hot tagged a Luger. Um, the Blue Brothers do a switch behind the referee's back, but they end up getting pinned anyway after a Bulldog sunset flip. Nothing much to that match. No, I mean, there really wasn't that much. There's not really that much to say about it at all. Poor Luger has fallen even further than Brett. Like, this yeah. tag team won't even last really much longer than this. And then is Luger's the, gone. Is this like the worst fall? I mean, okay, so Bundy went from the main event of WrestleMania two to the little people match for WrestleMania three. Yeah. And the Miz went from the main event of WrestleMania 27 to the team Teddy versus team Johnny tag match the next year. This is worse. 
Because that those both still felt like highlighted spots, even though they were falls down the card. Like the having Bundy in the midget match was at least an attempt to highlight Bundy for like a comedy spot. And they were doing that thing where like Bundy beats everybody in 10 seconds. So like fine. And the Miz thing was at least he was like the captain of a team and like a big thing between the two GMs. They were trying. Here it really feels like, well, Luger sucks. Let's just throw him in a tag and fucking forget about him. They go backstage where Nicholas Turturro from NYPD Blue is supposed to interview the Million Dollar Corporation, but his mic doesn't work. They have so many audio problems on this show. This is the first WrestleMania to have those in forever, too. It feels like their production's been flawless since, like, WrestleMania 2 to this point. Because Vince wasn't that focused. <laughs> and then for the Intercontinental title, we've got Double J, Jeff Jarrett, defending against Razor Ramon. Uh, Jeff Good. Jarrett took the title off Razor at the Royal Rumble. You know, he's come in with some heat. He's being promoted pretty heavily. He got the country music singer gimmick. I love this old school Jeff Jarrett. I think this was a great character for the time. I don't hate it at all. And adding the roadie to it was a genuinely good idea. They have great chemistry together and it makes sense. Um, the problem is, is that Jeff Jarrett's not over. And just, I don't know what exactly it is, but Jeff Jarrett's never over. It's just, you put everything there and it seems like it should work, and just fans don't care. <laughs> he like, just lacks something. Fire, something. intensity in the ring. And, like, he almost gets it, like, in the late 90s, which, unfortunately, the only time he ever shows personalities with the woman-beating gimmick, which is, <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ, that's a whole other bag of worms we've never really opened. And now today he gets massive nostalgia pops. Because he was just always there for, like, 15 years Jeff Jarrett just shows up, <laughs> and now he gets mad. It's amazing that he's doing this character now, like 23 years later. Yeah, now it's nostalgic and ironic. Yeah. But man, I hated him at this time when I was a kid. Oh, God, did I hate Jeff Jarrett. Like, like turn the TV off heat. They're brief pre-match comments from Razor and one, two, three kid, but their mics are not at the proper level, so you can't hear them. Yeah, which is probably fine because the one, two, three kid okay. is not a promo that you need to hear. Though my favorite part of this promo is just Razor's just in the background letting the kid do the talking for him. And then literally as it ends, he goes, let's go, kid. And then his music hits perfectly right after that. It's like, that's a cool moment. So, like, the match starts... And Razor throws Jared out of the ring, and then him and Kid pose, and they do Razor's pyro. Yeah, like literally the bell rings, and yeah. then they do his pyro. Which, God, that's awesome pyro. But oh, God, it's still kind of a weird moment. Like, even Lawler points out because, like, Razor and Jared have like a little exchange, and yeah. Kid's still in the ring waiting to pose. The show is just full of production errors. Yeah. <laughs> Jared stalls for a while. He gets Razor in a headlock. Razor breaks it out with a back suplex. Uh, Jared goes for a cross body, but Razor catches him out of the air, hits a fallaway slam. Jared then clips Razor's knee and locks on the figure four, which Razor eventually is able to turn over and get out of. 
Razor hits a super back suplex, but he can't make the cover. He goes for the Razor's edge, but the roadie jumps in, clips Razor's knee right in front of the referee for the disqualification. And then there's a big brawl after the match. Jarrett puts Kid in the figure four, but Razor recovers and breaks it up. Razor and Kid is might be like the best illustrative example of how in order to really get somebody over, you need them to have connections to other people. Like Razor and Kid are like my favorite tandem of the like the decade. I love that pairing so much. It's him sticking up for like his little brother, the kid, is just great. And it humanized the Razor Ramon character. And they just look like they belong together. Like they just because they're real friends. Like they they literally are. They travel together. They're part of the clique together. It just makes sense. And like it humanizes them and it gives kid credibility. It's just awesome. This match is okay. It's not awesome. Like I wish I could say that it was. It's probably the second best match on the card. Maybe third. We go backstage again to Nicholas Totoro. Um, he interviews Shawn Michaels, who assures him that Pamela Anderson will be in his corner tonight. And the Million Dollar Corporation is just sort of standing around, milling around in the background of the locker room in this promo. Is this the weirdest assemblage of talent of any stable ever? And I know that that's a big statement. That is, but it might well be. So who's in this? You've got Kamu Mustafa, King Kong Bundy, IRS, Nikolai Volkov, and Tatanka. Yeah, that's just a... What a squad. What a hodgepodge of shit. <laughs> then Todd Pettengill interviews uh, former Chicago Bears running back Neil Anderson in the crowd. Neil Anderson holds the designation of being the second most dominant running back in Tech Mobile after Bo Jackson. He was a badass. Though I will argue Barry Sanders was better, but I understand what you're saying there. Yeah, Neil Anderson had power too. Oh, Anderson would just run through them tackles, man. As a Bears fan, Anderson is a, a happy memory that it's it's fun to look back on. Um, Anderson says his money's on LT tonight. Also, Pettengill's rocking a mullet unlike anything I've ever seen here. Like the the nicely quaffed mullet that goes like all the way down to his ass. Like that's that's a hell of a look, Todd. I, he's such a representative of this era. Yeah. Because he's only around for these new generation years. And then he is gone by the time we get to the Attitude Era. It's almost like he couldn't survive outside of this era. He just no. was doomed to stay within it. Um, you to be in his natural ecosystem. Oh, yeah. Then we've got King Kong Bundy versus The Undertaker. Yes, King Kong Bundy in 1995. Like, Had he wrestled like after he left the WWF in like 87? Had he, he never went to WCW. I think he did some indie stuff, but no, I think he was pretty much out of the business. Yeah. Like, I, what on earth causes him to come back? What do you think King Kong Bundy does for a living when he's not wrestling? Jesus, I don't know. Truck driver? <laughs> like, what What can a man that size do other than wrestle? Uh, DiBiase stole the urn from Paul Bear. This Undertaker Million Dollar Corporation feud just went on forever. This was like the entire... So this started the previous year with the fake Undertaker. Yes was DiBiase's guy. And like, it just continues all through 95. Well, they got, they got nothing for Taker to do. Cause I mean, we, we've mentioned before, but like you, at this point, you have to engineer a second universe for the undertaker yeah. away from everything else. 
And so not only do you have to find stuff for all of your normal people to do, but you have to like invent a whole other world for the Undertaker to be a part of, because to this point, they're still refusing to let him interact with anybody else unless they're actively feuding with him. American League umpire Larry Young is the referee of this match for some reason. I guess like the was baseball on strike? Because they were like, well, 94, I believe, is the year of the strike, but it hasn't that doesn't start until the middle. They they went on strike in the middle of the season. Okay. Because they make a point of being like, well, he's got nothing else to do. We might as well be here. Like, all right, sure. I guess. Yeah. So his thing was like when he would argue with the managers and the players, he would like get aggressive and chest bump them. Apparently he wanted chest bump Undertaker during the match, and Taker told him, fuck no, we're not doing that. God, can you imagine if the Undertaker had to fucking oh, sell for this guy? Would have been wretched. Like Undertaker would have murdered him. Taker immediately goes for the rope walk, but he can't take Bundy down. A series of clotheslines does knock Bundy down. Uh, Bundy clotheslines Undertaker over the top rope. Taker lands on his feet, and he snatches the urn away from DiBiase. But then Kama runs down to the ring and takes the urn from Paul Bear. That distraction allows Bundy to take control. Jim Ross then interviews Kama as the match is going on, and Kama says he's going to melt down the urn and make a necklace, which he, in fact, would do before SummerSlam. That's pretty great. Yay. <laughs> Yay. A body slam by Bundy, then a splash. Um, long, long chin lock from Bundy. Then he hits the uh, corner avalanche, but Taker pops back up. Body slam by Undertaker, a leaping lariat, and that is enough to get the pin. That was not good. No, this is trash. I mean, he beat the corpse of Jimmy Snuka the year before, and even that was better than this. Yeah, so Undertaker's opponents at this point. Yeah, Jimmy Snuka. Jake Roberts was actually good. Yeah, that was pretty good. Giant Gonzalez and King Kong Bundy. The streak did not get off to a strong start. Like, The Undertaker sucks during this period. And I'm really sorry to say that. I know so many of you guys have such positive memories of The Undertaker from wherever in your childhood you started watching wrestling. And maybe you like remember fondly this period and some of the cool stuff that he did. But The Undertaker is not a great entity. Like, when he shows up, you're not going to see anything cool. Like, in his matches. His matches no. are fucking terrible. And he's miserable during this period. Like These feuds are awful. These storylines are terrible. These matches are terrible. They won't give him any good opponents. It's just, yeah. 96 is kind of the year of his resurrection, as he gets to work with Diesel and then Mankind and Bret Hart. And they start, like, integrating him into the rest of the show. Which is so needed. And, like... It's funny because it's so bad here, but they put in so many years of making him separate that it genuinely feels like a big deal and a breath of fresh air when he does interact with other people. So I understand why they were doing what they did, and it worked. And this is also sort of where Mark Calloway starts establishing his reputation as like the leader of the locker room and the most respected guy because they're giving him dog shit to do, and he's just making the best of it. Like, it's like, if I can do this, you guys can do whatever you're doing. Yeah. 
That said, he's in kind of the unique position among the roster in that he can't really leave for WCW because he can't take his gimmick with him. And, like, what is The Undertaker without this gimmick? Let's say he's just mean Mark Calloway again. Yeah. Like, I don't think he could have pulled off, like, switching over to the biker character at this point. That's a very good point. Establish himself more before that could happen. Yeah, everybody else, literally, like, their gimmicks aren't really that big, but he's got the heaviest gimmick weight of anybody, maybe in wrestling history. We go backstage where Turturro reports that Pamela Anderson is nowhere to be found and that she and Shawn Michaels have had a falling out. And then he interviews Steve McMichael and some of LT's other All-Pros, um, the All-Pro team consists of Ken Norton Jr., Chris Spielman, Ricky Jackson, Carl Banks, Steve McMichael, and Reggie White. That is, like, actually an NFL All-Star team. Oh, yeah. It's like a murderer's row of, like, the greatest sackers of all time. Like, that's really cool. Do you think they missed an opportunity by not having, like, any offensive players on here that people would recognize more? Like, get some quarterbacks in there? That might have helped if you got, I don't know, a Jerry Rice, a Brett Favre, Steve Young. I don't know who would have been available. Yeah. Like, again, I keep going back to the Dion idea. And, like, maybe you just get, like, Jerry Rice and Steve Young. Like, the 49ers or the Cowboys to come in and be with them. Like, that seems cooler. But, like, this is literally, like, some really great players. And they seem so excited to be yeah. here. Yeah. Um, Mick Michael kind of emerged as the star on the lead up to this. He was doing some great work. He did commentary on one of the Raws, and he did a really good job with that. This is clearly where WCW kind of gets their eyes on him. And we know that uh, Mongo's wrestling career did not really pan out, but I don't think they were wrong to see the potential in him. Oh, absolutely not. And, like, they bring him in as a commentator first, which makes total sense because he's not horrible at it. Um. It's funny because we remember Bongo so poorly, especially because there are other football players who during the same time come in and just kill it right off the bat. Like Kevin Green needs like one week of wrestling training and he's having like decent matches with everybody. Uh, Unfortunately, Mongo just doesn't have it. But that's not Mongo picked up wrestling at like a normal person's pace. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. We shouldn't bury Mongo the way that we do. He had no opportunity to succeed. Uh, next up, uh, we got a tag team championship match as the Smoking Guns will defend their titles against Owen Hart and a mystery partner who is revealed to be Yokozuna, which is a welcome surprise. Yeah. If this were against someone other than the Smoking Guns, it would feel like a bigger deal. Though The promo right before the match, right after they reveal that it's Yokozuna and the Smoking Guns are clearly like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> we're so fucked. This is horrible. Uh, Yoko has somehow gotten even fatter. Man, he looks horrible here. It's, and like, I mean, he's done. Like, he, he always is. looked like a huge fat dude, but like he, he somehow kept that like athletic veneer enough that you would be like, all right, well, I get it. But like, he's ballooned up past that now. We're just like, oh, he looks uncomfortable walking. How much weight does he need to gain for it to be noticeable? It's got to be like a minimum 50 pounds for it to even matter, right? got to be, yeah. Like, he's, like, visibly rounder. Yeah. It, like, uh... So they have a tag team match. The Guns get some offense in early, but Owen and Yoko turn the tide. Yoko does, you know, nerve holds and that kind of thing. 
Owen misses a missile drop kick on Billy and hits Yokozuna instead. There's a hot tag to Bart, but Yoko cuts it off. Belly to belly suplex, bonsai drop. That only gets two. Yoko throws Bart out of the ring, tags in Owen, and he covers Billy without doing anything and gets the pin and leaves with both tag titles because he's Owen Hart. Because he's fucking Owen Hart. The little character details they would get right with him. Like, Owen Hart is so head and shoulders above everyone else on these shows in terms of actually seeming to give a shit about what he's doing and, like, actually, like, being engaged 100%. Like, he's killing it on a level no one else is even close to right now. He gets nothing for that. Nothing. This is the peak of his career right here. Then Todd Pettengill interviews Bam Bam Bigelow. We see clips of his altercation with LT from the Royal Rumble and then from the public workout in Times Square earlier in the week. Mm. Then we've got an I Quit match as Bret Hart faces off against Bob Backlund. Roddy Piper is revealed to be the special guest referee for the second year in a row. This was just the Piper spot. Just show up for WrestleMania and get that check. Yeah, and you can't really blame, like, it's diminishing returns. Like, the first time was pretty great. Here, they're just kind of like, here Vince literally says, hey, King, remember Roddy Piper? Oh, God. I Roddy Piper draws with Hulk Hogan in WCW a couple of years after this. Like, it's still a thing that can happen. I think it's pretty clear that Vince, while he does keep going to the well here with like the people from the 80s and stuff, he seems to underestimate how much the big stars from the 80s are still capable of drawing. That's the weird thing, is he's using like Bundy and Volkoff and Backlund, but he has Piper, who's still in pretty good shape and can still wrestle, and they don't use him. Yeah, like Savage and Piper, oh, we don't want to use those guys. Bring back Bundy Bundy. and Bundy! Like, yeah. what? Now is the time for Bundy Mania to run wild. Good lord. Um, so this match can only be won with a verbal submission. The inf- This is the infamous what do you say match where Piper is on the mic asking a wrestler if they quit every 30 seconds. It just becomes a comedy match. First of all, I quit matches are inherently stupid. Because literally it requires the what do you say spot so many times. Yeah, just breaks up the flow of the match. And like, thank God they eventually determined that we could just do tap outs instead of like verbal things. Because it makes it work so much smoother and so much visually more appealing. And it completely made any sort of thing like this unnecessary forever. But they still do I quit matches to this day. Doesn't make sense. But it's just, it's trash. It's literally just guys putting each other into holds for long, long stretches of time and then being like, what do you say? What do you say? And Bob Backlund never responds to any of the questions. No, no, including the one where the submission is called. Yeah, what do you say? Ah! Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Brett has called this his worst pay-per-view match, and I don't think he's wrong. No, he's right. This is trash. God, this is horrible. And Owen's in, why can't we do Brett and Owen here? Blow that feud off. And like, here's the thing, is that Bob Backlund should not be here. But if he's going to be here, find him something in the mid card to do. It's not like Bob can't work. It's not like he's much too old. But the idea that he's a main eventer who should be having his hands on Brett Hart drags Brett Hart down. 
this sucks all the air. This whole feud sucks all the air out of Brett. Like Brett is supposed to be at, even if he's not your top guy, he's still your number two baby face by a mile. And he's like, this is the worst thing you could possibly do to him is make himself for Bob Backlund. Horrible match. Just horrible. Awful, awful match. Referee show was bad. Oh, and then Todd Pettengill interviews Diesel, who kind of stumbles over his words during his promo and just seems uncomfortable. Yeah, because he's not. Imagine Kevin Nash not having any idea of what to say. That's yeah. that's a script. Like Kevin Nash has never been at a loss for words. Now we've got our WWF Championship match as Diesel will defend against the Heartbreak Kid Shawn Michaels uh, for celebrities. We've got Jonathan Taylor Thomas from Home Improvement as the timekeeper. Nicholas Turturro from NYPD Blue as the ring announcer. Sean is accompanied to the ring by Sid and Jenny McCarthy. And then Diesel is accompanied to the ring by Pam Anderson, who he has stolen from Shawn Michaels, as she was supposed to be accompanying the winner of the Royal Rumble for this match. Let me paint a quick word picture, because this is the coolest moment of the whole show. And it's a very brief moment, and if you blinked, you would miss it. But it's a perfect encapsulation of what the Diesel character should have been and could have been. Diesel walks out through the ramp, ducks his head to get out I through love the that thing. He has to duck his head because he's a giant, and he looks awesome. He's got like the fringe and the leather and the vest, and he just looks like a stone cold badass. And he comes out, and he's just looking at the crowd like, yeah. And then he just like twitches his fingers. And out and like out through comes the silhouette of Pam Anderson as she walks out to him and like hangs off of him. And Diesel just has this smirk on his face, like, yeah, you know, that's right. <laughs> that moment of just like Diesel being a badass who has everything because he can is the Diesel character we could have had. That's the one that Ke that's Kevin Nash poking through the veneer of Diesel that Vince McMahon is trying so hard to lay over him. Yeah, We cannot so let cool. him be that charismatic. Every time he like pokes charisma out, Vince shoves it back in and says, no, Hogan wasn't charismatic like that. Yeah, you need to be lame. Basically, yeah. Vince doesn't understand what cool looks like. They're calling him Big Daddy Cool. Vince McMahon would not have known cool in 1995 if it had struck him upon the face. Oh. So, before the bell, Sean charges Diesel and gets backdropped over the top rope to the floor. That allows Pam Anderson to get in the ring and pose with Diesel. Nice. <laughs> Um, it quickly becomes clear that Shawn Michaels has come to Hartford with just one mission in mind, and that's to show Diesel up and blow him up. This is his best friend in the world. Yeah. And, like, you got to imagine that there was a conversation between the two where Shawn was like, well, I love you, Kev, but uh, when we get in that ring, I'm going to bury you. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, good luck out there, kid. It's my match. Yeah. Um a huge backdrop since Sean, I swear, 10 feet in the air. God, that was like the best backdrop I've ever seen. Yeah. Sean goes out of the ring and lands on top of a photographer. He then grabs the guy and throws him out of the way. I don't think that was part of the match. No, I absolutely don't think so. 
all these photographers around ringside are super weird. And I have to imagine they're for like sports publications and yeah. stuff like that. But they have, it's clear that they've never covered wrestling before because they are constantly in the way. No, have you ever seen like any photographers at ringside for a WWF match? I have seen it before. They've done it. God, I wish I could remember off the top of my head who it was. But like sometimes when they bring Japanese guys over just for that match, they'd have them out there. Yeah. But that's it. Like it's not like they'd just be clustered around the ring the whole time. These are like Sports Illustrated photographers who have no idea where they are or what they're doing. Yeah, they are constantly in the way during this match. And like this match, they're constantly going to the floor, getting thrown out of the ring, coming off the top rope to the floor. This is not a good match to have people who aren't smartened up to the business around ringside. I feel like when Sean put this match together, they did not know that the photographers were going to be there. Yeah, uh, it's very strange. Like he said, you see this in Japanese wrestling, or you would see this in the WWF if they had a Japanese guy on the card that would have the photographers out there for that match. But right. this is very unusual for WWF. Yeah, I kept waiting for the Japanese guy to show up. I was like, who is it on this show? Do they got like Tenryu again? Like, no, nobody's on this show Nobody. at all. Uh, Sean is just bumping his ass off. Like every single punch he takes, he flat backs. This is, this is Shawn Michaels' most epic overselling performance. Like all the way to when he fights Hogan and takes <laughs> like double flips off of everything. The all-time classic. The passive-aggressive Shawn Michaels attention stealer. Sean fires up, clotheslines Diesel to the floor, goes over the top with him, but catches the rope, skins the cat back into the ring, pops up onto the top rope, and does like kind of a twisting crossbody, like almost a half moon salt. Like I've never seen him do some of this stuff before or since. He's on fire. Yeah. This is his audition. Well, like it can't be overstated enough that there's an opening here. Diesel is not working. No. Sean knows Blood it. Blood in the water. Sean knows it. Brett's got no momentum. Taker's separate. Razor's yeah. in the IC title. There's a golden ring sitting right there. And like all Vince has ever asked anybody to do is grab it. So you can't even blame Sean for grabbing it. And right here, he's just like, look, if I got to step over my best friend to get to that spot, he stepped on. <laughs> Sean hits Diesel with a baseball slide. Uh, Diesel swings at him with an elbow strike, but Sean ducks and Diesel's arm hits the ring post. Diesel is down for a while on the floor, and the crowd passes the time by chanting for Sid. They're so bored. They yeah. don't like Diesel at all. Sean hits Diesel with a splash from the ring apron to the floor. Again, one of those spots you have not seen before or since. Yeah. Then back in the ring, there's a second rope bulldog by Sean. There's a let's go diesel chant, but it's drowned out by a let's go Sean chant. Yeah. And I mean, we're in the Northeast, but this is not one of those smart towns. Like this is not one of not those. New things. York. No, they are not expecting this reaction. And the, the legend has it that they are very confused backstage while this is happening. I think this is the time where after like, Patterson and Pritchard and everybody else has been trying to pitch Vince on Sean as a babyface for like a year. 
Vince shows up to a meeting. He's like, God damn it. Am I the only one who sees that Shawn Michaels is a baby face? What am I doing <laughs> paying you guys for? And like, it, it's, it's so funny though, because it's so clear to me that like Vince probably didn't have his hands all the way. I'm sure he signed off on what was happening on the show, but he probably wasn't watching like every superstars and every action zone or whatever while he was dealing with all of this other stuff. He's like literally healing a broken neck and he's, he's literally like going through all this court stuff. So he arrives at WrestleMania and he's probably like, all right, the fans are going to love diesel. And then he watches this match, but they just hate him and they love Sean. And they're like, he's like, well, what the fuck is this about? Why aren't we pushing Sean? Like, yeah. The whole time it's been like that. Sean then hits a flying elbow to Diesel's back, which gets a nice pop. On commentary, Vince says, Diesel, knowing full well he's the underdog at WrestleMania. Diesel. Why is, why is Diesel the underdog? Diesel is seven foot tall. He's fighting a guy who's a foot shorter than him. That is just baffling. And it's not the only time that they ever do it that way. It's like, what do you mean he's the underdog? How? The same thing with John Cena. Like, you don't have to be an underdog to be a babyface. Like, dis disabuse ourselves of that notion. Yeah. Like, you have, like, they, there are times where they'd be like, somebody's the underdog against Rey Mysterio. And you'd be like, excuse me? What? <laughs> Sean with a long sleeper hold. Diesel's arm drops twice, but he fires up and powers out. Diesel makes his comeback with a clothesline snake eyes and then the boss man straddle against the ropes uh diesel with a flipper punch that sends sean to the floor not a lot of heat in this match crowd did not really pop for diesel's comeback no and i, I don't think that the fans really know what to make of it because sean's kind of wrestling this match like the baby face and diesel's also kind of wrestling it like the baby face and it's it's very confusing it's not a bad match like it's fine to watch but the crowd is just tuned out. Like they don't, they, whatever's happening is not what they want to see. The crowd does actually pop when Sean's tights get pulled down and we get to see his bare ass. It's the greatest spot in wrestling history. Yeah. They keep going to the floor and having to wade through all the photographers at ringside. They're just kind of throwing them out of the way. They go back into the ring Hebner twists his ankle when he went to the floor, so he is down. Sean gets Diesel with sweet chin music. He covers. He's got the pin, but the referee is down because Hebner hurt himself going out to deal with Sid. It's kind of a weird spot to let Diesel pin Sean here, but I think the point is that like Sid cost Sean the title to set up. Sid turning on Sean and Sean turning face. Right. I have to imagine that that's where they were going with it. But in the moment, it really yeah. feels like, wait, so Sean beat Diesel clean? Yep. With right in the middle. Music? Like he should have beaten him? Like really? Like they're not protecting Diesel in the way you would protect a seven-foot monster. No, they got to make him the underdog. Yeah, literally they're having Sean kick his ass. And it doesn't how do make you sense. Book, how do you book a seven foot baby face other than to put him against guys even bigger than him? I mean, I don't think that it's really all that possible. Um, the, Undertaker, the Undertaker has pulled it off over the years. But the way that you do it is really just that you make people like him for other reasons, and then you just kind of ignore that he's that big. Like that in all sense. of the Undertaker's best feuds as a baby face, 
he's usually facing guys smaller than him, and it doesn't really matter that he's seven foot. And like Kevin Nash would get over later, not by being seven foot monster Kevin Nash, but by being like funny, cool guy Kevin Nash who happens to be seven foot. So the referee finally makes it back into the ring. He counts one, two, and Diesel kicks out immediately. It's not really a near fall. This was a big point of contention. Vince really wanted this spot. Sean and Diesel pushed hard for no, like I can't kick out of Sweet Chin Music at one. Oh, man. He wanted him to get up at one. Yeah. Uh, in Sean's book, they very much treated as if Diesel kicked out at one, but like he did not. It was two, but it was a short two count. Well, it, it looks just really stupid because there's no drama in it. Yeah. So like they they kind of split the difference so that it's not Diesel like hulking up and he can't be beaten, and it's not a super dramatic two and a half. It's just two, and it yeah. just sucks the wind out. The crowd boos. Yeah, the crowd does not want that. Like, it's just like, oh, mm, gross. We wanted Sean to win. Uh, Diesel with a back suplex. Both guys are down. The referee counts all the way to nine, and it's Sean who recovers enough to roll over and cover Diesel to get two. Sean comes off the second rope. Diesel catches him out of the air with a sidewalk slam, which is an amazing spot. Yeah, they've tried this so many other times with like Kane and other people, and no one ever catches them. But like this is amazing. Um, Diesel then catapults Sean into a turnbuckle that Sid had exposed earlier. Diesel then hits the big boot, and seriously, he hulks up. Like, does the shake in the arms deal, and the crowd does not give a shit. No. It's just sad. It's sad to watch this. And you know in his heart, he knows that it's going to fail. Like, he's been told he has to do this. And, like, we've talked before about how Sean Sean Michaels knows where the business is going a solid three or four years before it goes there. And no one will listen to him. And this is part of an example of that, like, clearly Sean and Kevin know at this point that what they're doing sucks and won't work. But they just can't get anyone to listen to him. If, isn't it weird that Sid doesn't do anything to Nash the entire match? If you want to get heat, shouldn't it be Sid interfering? Like, they don't treat Shawn Michaels like a chicken shit heel that Diesel's trying to squash at all. Which should obviously be, like, the blueprint for this match, right? Is that, like, Diesel's could squash him like a bug, but he just can't get him. And, like, the fans want him to kill Shawn. That's not it. It's an equal match. And at some point, Sean's beating him up. And Sid is not necessary. Diesel hits the worst jackknife powerbomb I have ever seen. Somehow, Sean's feet hit the ground before his back does. Legend has it, Sean sandbagged his ass. As Kevin Nash said in a shoot interview, well, it wasn't me coming down from a zip line at WrestleMania the next year, was it? Yep. It's amazing their friendship survived. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, yeah. how great would it have been to watch Diesel come down a zip line? I would have been terrified. Yeah. That would have been another of those Undertaker, what the fuck is going on here moments. <laughs> Fucking. 
Seven foot, three hundred pound diesel coming down a zip line. Yeah. Um, diesel gets the pin and wins the match, and that was a very weird match. The work was good, like the athleticism, the spots. They're just not in the right roles. It's not a match that got over with the crowd at all. No, it's just everyone in this match is being booked against who they should be. And that's not me saying like who they should be. Like I'm an expert and I just know who they should be, though I do kind of feel that way. But it's just, it's so clear that the fans are like, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what you're doing. I don't like what you're doing. It all just cancels itself out. I want more Sid. I want Babyface Sean. I want Diesel to be cool. None of you are doing anything. The next night on Raw, Sean and Sid would split up with Sid powerbombing Sean three times. Diesel would make the save. That turns Sean face, and we're set up with a Diesel versus Sid feud uh, for the next couple months. How you could look at this and be like, all right, well, they hated everything about this. How do we save it? Oh, I know. Diesel versus Sid. Oh. Diesel, who's not over, best friends with Sean again. No. No. You completely misunderstood. Yeah, they still didn't get it. It would take them another year before they would figure it out. They knew they were wrong about something, but they had no idea what they were wrong about. (sighs) All right. It's main event time. We've got Lawrence Taylor versus Bam Bam Bigelow in the main event of WrestleMania 11. This is what the world has come to. This is always held up when people talk about WrestleMania matches. It's like, boy, what a stupid ass main event this was. And don't get me wrong. There's a lot stupid about it. But if you were ranking the match quality of every WrestleMania main event from start to finish, and there are like, shit, I don't know, 30 Six odd. I don't even know which one we're on now. Are we up to 40 yet? No, this one's going to be 35, I think. Jesus Christ. Okay, so there are 35 of them. Tough because they don't even use the numbers anymore. Yeah, I think this one might be towards the midway point. This is a good match. It's not bad. There's definitely been worse. Yeah. Lawrence Taylor does one thing super well, and that's throw a vicious looking clothesline. Yeah, he's not he working does. with that clothesline. And he that's all he does all match long. They're like, all right, LT can throw a clothesline and sell. That's what he's going to do. So first, Vince McMahon introduces the Million Dollar Corporation, King Kong Bundy, Tatanka, Nikolai Volkov, the Extreme Fighting Machine, Kama Mustafa, Erwin R. Scheister, and Ted DiBiase. Um these intros are awesome as they've either licensed or produced a knockoff of the classic Monday Night Football theme. Yes. Like, that's so cool. Yeah, we get to hear the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And then LT's All-Pro team, Ken Norton Jr., linebacker from the San Francisco 49ers, Chris Spielman, linebacker from the Detroit Lions, uh, Ricky Jackson, linebacker, also San Francisco 49ers. Carl Banks, linebacker, Cleveland Browns. Steve McMichael, defensive tackle, Green Bay Packers. 
and Reggie White, defensive end, Green Bay Packers. Like we said, a legit all-pro team. Like, those guys are all studs. Oh, yeah, and they make a big deal out of this. Like, they have, like, video packages for all of these guys. And, again, the enthusiasm these wrestlers have for this moment is so cool. Like, that's all you really ask for from celebrities, right, is that they actually give a shit about being there. And, like, they're all really interested. They're really into this. Um, Kama and Mongo get into it, continuing a feud that had been running up to this show, but doesn't go anywhere after this, I think, because my guess is WCW just outbid uh, the WWF for Mongo's services. I'm sure. Uh, Bam Bam makes his entrance. He scares off Salt and Peppa, who are preparing to do LT's entrance. Bam Bam, definitely looking like a monster here. Oh, God, yeah. Like, God, he... Such a missed opportunity was Bam Bam. Like, if Bam Bam comes into this match with heat, it's a totally different story, right? Bam Bam versus Diesel sounds like a good match. Fuck, like, it, there are so many monsters that you're pretending like you're building up. Bam Bam versus Taker wasn't even really yes. a thing that they did. Yeah, somehow he's fe Taker feuds with the Million Dollar Corporation for a year and doesn't wrestle Bam Bam. The one big guy in the whole wrestling industry who can move. Yeah. Um... LT gets a nice pop. Uh, sadly, on the network, they dub over Salt and Pepper performing What a Man as his entrance music. Which is a shame because what a great entrance that yeah. would be, right? This was awesome. And LT looks awesome here. Yeah. Like, let's not understate it. Like, LT looks like a star. Yeah, he's definitely in shape. He's got like a warm up jacket, which takes off to reveal he's got like a custom made. LT jersey, and then he's got like shorts and tall white boots on. Cool look. Yeah, like he just he looks like uh, like I can see why they thought that they could do more with him after this because he looks like oh shit, LT's yeah. the fucking wrestler. Sunglasses, diamond stud earring, like looking cool. Looking cool. Um, this was not announced beforehand, as far as I know, but Pat Patterson is the referee of the match. I assume he's just in there to like help call the match and guide LT through what he needs to do. Has to be. Yeah. yeah. He's the one who put the match, uh, put the match together. It only makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, LT starts the match with a big slap and then a clothesline and a knee lift. A uh, clothesline sends Bam Bam to the floor. King comments that those are all moves that Diesel taught LT. If they want Diesel and LT to be connected, like, why don't they wrestle together? Why isn't Diesel out there for this match in his corner? Well, like, literally, like, that's the template, right? Is that, like, Carl Malone does the diamond cutter because DDP taught him how to do it when they were training together. Like, <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think LT was going to jackknife Bam Bam. God, that would have been fucking awesome. Oh, God. <laughs> Bam Bam would have been out of his mind to take a fucking jackknife powerbomb. Hell no. I don't know. I don't know if um, Nash could jackknife Bam Bam. He's a big fucking guy, but he could get up. Like, he, yeah. he wouldn't have sandbagged him. Uh, Bam Bam gets back in the ring. He gets hit with a bulldog, then hip-tossed. He bails out again. Smart to pace the match this way with lots of breaks for LT to catch his breath. Absolutely. And, like... They keep LT looking real good the entire match because of that. Yeah. He's either on offense in quick spurts or he's getting worn down. Which is exactly the way you do it. I mean, that's genius. Yeah. 
never a point where he's having to do a lot of spots all in a row where he's going to forget what he needs to do or get tired. And it must be said too, that like the fans are responding to LT. Yeah, like this he's, like over. The, he's the only baby face on this show. They seem to care about. Uh, the all pros and the million dollar corporation get into it on the floor. That distraction allows Bam Bam to take over. Um, LT comes back with a shoulder tackle, but Bam Bam cuts him off. Bigelow locks in a big Boston crab. He then hits his moonsault, but he hurt his knee on the landing and can't make the cover. LT comes back with some kind of gut wrench suplex. Yeah, that was something that I was not expecting to see from him. That's a tough move. Like, you got to really be able to move your body to pull that off. Yeah, and especially to do on a guy that fucking big. Yeah. Like, that's that's yeah. a good move. Bam Bam comes back with an amazing insiguri. Yeah, he just kicks his head off, man. Uh, Bam Bam with a diving headbutt from the top rope for a two count. LT makes his comeback. He hits shoulders in the corner, a series of forearms. And then a flying forearm off the second rope gets the pin. I can't imagine that match could have been any better than it was. No. I mean, that's – it's really a study in how to handle people like this. Like, keep them limited. Only let them do what they're comfortable doing. Like, bring them through the match. Have somebody in there to tell them what to do. And, like, they they masterfully handle this. Like, this is just a study in, like, how how to take care of your celebrities – Especially if they're enthusiastic and willing, which LT clearly was. LT clearly trained for this. LT clearly wanted to do a good job. This meant something to him, which, like, that's all. He, like I said, that's all you can really ask from a celebrity is that they actually give a shit and try. Yeah, I've never heard who trained him for the match. I would assume it was Tom Pritchard. He always seemed to be the go-to guy for that in this era. Yeah, probably. It. I, I don't know. Like I. I've always, since I was a kid, heard people disparage this match in this show. And while this show is trash, it is. The show deserves it. The match yeah, doesn't. No. Lawrence Taylor busts his ass to make this something. And Bam Bam Bigelow, it's not his fault that he has absolutely no heat whatsoever coming into this. These two do their best. And this is not a bad main event. As, as far as celebrity involvement, this is the best celebrity or athlete match until probably Floyd Mayweather versus Big Show, or is this better? Sounds right. Um, I like the Mayweather Big Show match more, but that has a lot more bells and whistles to it. Yeah, that's not like really a conventional match like this is. Yeah, so, that's got the street fight and you know the spectacle of the size difference and all that. Yeah, like this is until then, this is the standard. All those Rodman Malone matches are amazing spectacles, but they suck. This match is good. Um, so after the match, uh, Bigelow clears out of there. Jim Ross gets a quick word with DiBiase in the aisle, and he's berating Bam Bam for losing. Bam Bam would turn face uh, the night after this. He says he was promised a big run in the main event, but it didn't end up materializing. Bigelow would blame the click for that. He was always a click enemy. I mean, it is the click's fault, but I don't know it's because that they held him down or anything. I think it's just, it's the click's time. You know what I mean? And the promise that you're going to get beat by a football player in the WrestleMania main event and then get a giant push out of it just 
doesn't seem like something that makes any sense. Like, even if that's their intention, like you got beat by a football player. And this was an era where I feel like that kind of thing still mattered. Yeah. Like you, you didn't protect the business at all, buddy. You're not going to get pushed over all the other wrestlers. You're not going over diesel. If you can't beat LT. Oh, uh, LT is helped up. He's pretty clearly gassed at this point. Oh God. Yeah. Like this, look, this has been proven over and over again, but playing other sports in no way prepares you to do professional wrestling at all. The cardio is just out of this world different. Well, especially football where it's like you sprint for a few seconds and then you get to recover for right. you know, a minute between plays and you get 10 minutes off between series. Like football is not that taxing of a sport for cardio, really, unless you're playing receiver in an up-tempo offense. It's a shame that nobody in the United States of America gives a shit about soccer because that's probably the only sport that has the cardio requirements to let you be a decent wrestler. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. And then the show ends very abruptly. It does. Like, where was like, the giant celebration? Yeah, I don't know what the deal Like, maybe LT was just, like, again, gassed out and, like, had to get out of the ring. But there's no big celebration. You don't get all the football players posing in the ring like you thought you would. You don't, you know, get Diesel coming out to celebrate with LT like you would have thought you would. Just it certainly didn't show. run out of time. This, this show's, like, two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, this is by far the shortest WrestleMania. This is like half the length of some later WrestleManias. This is like not even a SummerSlam. This feels like an Unforgiven. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. That's WrestleMania 11. That's, Boy, that's did that suck. It. Yeah, what a trash beep of a show. This is the most depressing WrestleMania, and it's arguably the most depressing WWE show of all time. Because from here, last year... We ended WrestleMania and there was so much hope. Like they finally decided they're going with Brett and they have all these directions they can go with Owen and with Lex and with Yoko and with all of these guys. And when you leave this show, there's no future. Who is the future of this company? Not Diesel, not Brett, not Sean yet, not Bam Bam, not Taker. Who? They've got nothing. They've killed everybody. In one year, they kill everybody. And it's like, oh, shit. Like, while people talk about this year as being super destructive, and, like, they mostly talk about the next year as being super down for business, I don't think they ever talk enough about the damage they did to their own company and stars in 1994. They, they, or 1995. They literally bury their entire babyface roster under a mountain of mismanagement and poor booking. And they never, that, a lot of them never get out. I I don't know if this is the worst WrestleMania, but it's definitely down there. And th the word we kept coming back to was just sad. Like yeah. it's just a sad last, sorry, lack of spectacle here. When you think of how great WrestleMania in the past had been, even the not so, even the ones in Atlantic City that weren't great, weren't a shitty venue, still felt special. They still felt like something important. This show does not feel important at all. This show no. doesn't feel like anything. It like literally if you if you go through and watch every WrestleMania in a row and you just see like the sad like bringing down of the quality and the spectacle and the grandeur over the course of the years and just like uh, uh, this is the bottom. It'll start to slowly climb back up until it eventually until 
what it doesn't reach the heights of like, like those first four WrestleManias until what, like 17? 17 when they go back to a dome is the first one that really feels like you know they're back. Even you know, as they're doing really strong business with 14, 15, 16. Those just they're in basketball arenas, it just feels smaller. It doesn't feel like as big as when they were running the stadiums. And I don't think I don't know if it's possible that WrestleMania can recapture the essence of specialness that it like did in the 80s if it weren't for the fact that wrestlemania 17 is maybe the greatest wrestling show of all time like if it weren't that if it's not austin versus uh rock if it's not as great as it turned out to be and also in the dome like if that show fails i'm not sure that wrestlemania ever becomes what it is now like i'm just not sure how they get there like it just happened to be that they nailed it that hard. And even during the lean times in the mid thousands, WrestleMania retains its spectacle because they figure out how to do it, you know? Just barely. But yeah, these couple of years, WrestleMania was very much in danger yeah. of becoming like Starcade, where it just wasn't special. Yeah, we're just like, why even bother booking around it? Who cares? It's just another show. Yeah. I mean, for these few years, it just, they're running kind of the same size arenas they usually run for their pay per views. They don't have big star power and huge main events. WrestleMania just feels like another pay per view. Unfortunately, literally only the fact that Vince McMahon has so much fondness for the money it had drawn him in the past allows it to be anything other than just another pay per view. And thank God he held to that. Because fuck, the whole fucking wrestling world would be real different if he had abandoned the idea of WrestleMania as a big deal. So yeah, this is, I think, the bottoming out for the WWF in the mid-90s. By WrestleMania 12, things aren't good, but they're better. Yeah. Oh, So yeah, next time we get to cover WrestleMania 12, the epic 60-minute Iron Man match between Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. It's Shawn Michaels achieves his boyhood dream. Steve and I have drastically different opinions on this match. Oh, we're going to fight it next week. Oh, hell yeah. The Undertaker takes on Big Daddy Cool Diesel. That's a match that actually kind of makes sense. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. Sean Roddy Piper versus Gold Dust in a Hollywood backlot brawl. There, we got so much to talk about and how the hell they get to that. Yeah. And the return of the Ultimate Warrior as he destroys Triple H in the greatest match in pro wrestling history. Arguably the most ironic match ever contested on WWE grounds. All that and more next time when we take on WrestleMania 12. See you next time in Hollywood.